Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast, Young Blonde Suburban. I'm your host, Caitlin Files. I'm a young, white, female-identifying lawyer who lives in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, outside of Philly. This podcast runs as a sister show to Young Black Suburban, hosted by Tim Witherspoon Jr. The Young Suburban podcast hosts guests to engage in conversation about their different life journeys and perspectives. My show, Young Blonde, has a special focus on badass babes out there doing the damn thing. So welcome and thank you for tuning in. Let's jump into today's episode. Rafael Castro, I'm so excited to have you here. How are you, bud? Thank you so much, Katie, for having me. I'm so excited to be on your podcast today. So I wanted to have you for a few reasons. Um, One of the reasons is because you're young lawyer like I am in your th- you're in your 30s right yes okay um but you've had a, a few very cool jobs already throughout your legal career so I think it'd be cool to talk about um the type of work that you've been doing before I met you while we were working together and then since then but also to have you um essentially for representation And, you know, something that we work on at a nonprofit together, The Right Legacy, is teaching kids that no matter what they look like or where they come from, they too can be lawyers or work in the legal field, even though the legal field, as we know, is primarily dominated by white men, we are not white men. And I think it's important for kids to see that you can do it too. Um, So I'm so happy to have you here and I want to hear about your journey to becoming a lawyer. So let's start, um, where are you from? So I'm from Philly. Um, Both of my parents are from the Dominican Republic and they they wanted to have a better life for me. Um, And when they both got here, when they were high school, they didn't know any English. Um, So they took a bunch of ESL classes while they were in high school and they met each other at Burger King. Um, and my dad was a supervisor there and hit on her and I was made. And then Wait, he was decided- she an employee at the time too? She was, yes. Oh, that's a scandal. It is a scandal, <laughs> employment law issues. And uh, he decided that he wanted to have more stability. Um, so he joined the Navy and he did that for about eight years. He, we were stationed at a couple different bases across the country, Texas, Kentucky, and then ended up in Philadelphia, then at the Naval Yard in South Philly. My mom grew to love Philly, and she really enjoyed it here. And she was like, we're not moving back to New York. Like, this is our home. Mm-hmm. So uh, grew up in South Philly and had an amazing, amazing childhood. And I, I didn't really necessarily knew what I wanted to be in, in, uh, in life. Mm-hmm. I knew I did okay enough in school, I, but there were so many other people who were so much smarter than me. And I went to a all boy Catholic high school that, that kind of put me in the right mind frame of Roman Catholic. You went to Roman, brought in, okay. Brought in Vine. Mm-hmm. And I got accepted in the temple, which was like my dream school, even though I got accepted into other Ivy League schools. (laughs) And I was undeclared. I didn't know, I I really, really didn't understand like what I wanted to do in life. I knew I wanted to help others. 
And I did a bunch of internships. And then my first internship was actually at the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. So undeclared, I actually didn't know any attorneys at all, like none of my family. Uh, my grandmother has, has a third grade education. Um, both of my parents just came here from, from Dominican Republic. And I got to see some like badass lawyers. I got to see trial attorneys, uh, putting up juries, uh, putting up victims of heinous crimes, um, them advocating in a jury. And I like fell in love with it. And I was like, I think this is what I want to do. Yeah. And I actually interned there three separate times throughout college and law school. Really? Wow. Mm -hmm. And I got to like really dive in and meet a lot of great mentors and a lot of friends, I, I would say that are my friends today. And um, I was lucky enough after law school, after going to Widener, that uh, they gave me an offer, but I did a clerkship uh, with President Judge Wood Skipper, well, formerly President Judge Wood Skipper in City Hall, who's also a former DA. And I did that for about nine months. And, and I was a, a, a district attorney in Philly for about three years, which was an incredible experience before meeting you. Yeah, I mean, you have a very cool journey to becoming a lawyer. Um, so it was, it was actually the DA's office that made you wanna be a lawyer. Yes, I saw, uh, I saw that as a, as a prosecutor, you have the opportunity to affect both sides of the bar. So not only are you advocating for victims of, of property and, and, and violent crime and, and negotiating through the system with them and letting them know about what's going on with their case and, and how they need to testify at a, at a future hearing. But also the other side, I, I've had plenty of talks with uh, people who were charged with crimes, defendants, and uh, really giving them second opportunities and uh, negotiating pleas and making sure justice was done. That was my main thing. Mm -hmm. um, I was really considering be becoming a public defender and I actually did an internship with the Defenders Association as well. And all over I, the place. I was all over the place and I still <laughs> am. And I realized <laughs> that I can make more impact as a DA because they, they have the power to to actually bring forth charges, negotiate charges, and decide if, if trial or some, some type of other disposition is necessary. You know, that's interesting you say that because we're obviously, we met doing workers' compensation law and I still do it. But at some point when we were at that firm, I got an offer to do work comp law to represent the insurance companies. And I remember talking to my dad about it. And I was like, I just don't think I can do that. Like, it just doesn't sit well with me. Like, it's just not who I am. And he was like, you might actually be able to be more helpful on the side of the insurance companies because you can actually try to help out the injured workers and actually make sure the case runs what, right. Obviously, I didn't go that route. But it was an interesting perspective. And what you're saying about the DA's office is kind of like that. Um, when you're at the DA's office, you know, you know, I, I hate when people ask me when you hear they hear you represent injured workers, like how many people fake it? I hate that question. It drives me nuts. Um, but at the DA's office, 
you know, when we represent clients, we have to represent them no matter our personal feelings on the matter. Um, I would imagine that's tough in criminal law. Um, was there similar? Any, yeah, it's, it's similar, but it's got to be pretty tough at times when you have to represent your client, but you may not necessarily agree with what's going on. Does that ever happen? Or while you were there? All the time. <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure we'll talk about workers' compensation, uh, but sometimes we don't necessarily have someone who we're advocating who has like the white hat who, you know, is totally innocent and we feel like they have the best case ever. Um, that's why as a prosecutor, you're employed by the city, you know, or if you're working with the attorney general's office or with the U.S. attorney's office at a state or federal level, your, your constituents are, are the people. And sometimes when bringing forth charges, it wasn't necessarily the victim's mission or what the victim wanted to do. Uh, so for example, um, for a few months, I was assigned to family violence sexual assault unit um, that had to deal with um, victims of domestic abuse, um, victims of uh, sexual violence. And what I often found was that most victims, the, the, the vast majority of them, they knew the perpetrator, you know, so it was always the uncle, the boyfriend, the neighbor. And there's a lot of mixed feelings because you don't necessarily want to get that person in trouble, but at the same time, you want to make sure that, that there's accountability. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times it, there, it, it was really tough in, in bringing forth people who, who wanted to speak their truth in court or um, violent crime, right? Um, mm -hmm. A, a lot of a lot of the talk um, this this past year in the pandemic is is police reform and also um, the caveat of like how do we make our city safer and one of the things that we found uh, th this past year was like crazy gun violence right and but what's the gun violence right it's 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 typically turf wars uh, drug drug dealers and uh, people with with black hats, not white hats, right? So a lot of times I would have victims who were drug dealers who, who kind of got too too close to one block. And it it, it was it was tough work, but we, we had to bring justice when there wasn't innocent parties all around. So it, it's it's tough work. Um, but it's it's it, it was great work when I did it. And I can see what you're talking about, you know, especially I'm very in tune with women who are suffering domestic abuse or sexual assault, just because I'm a female. So I try to pay attention to that type of stuff going on, but women are very reluctant when that does happen, because like you're saying, it typically is someone they know. Um, and it's hard to then have that woman come out and speak out against a friend, a family member, just someone that they're connected to. That's tough work. Um, I commend you for it. You were there three years. Three years, yes. And then why'd you leave? I mean, I know what happened after, but why'd you leave? <laughs> <laughs> so I think I left because when I fell in love being a prosecutor, when I was like an undeclared Temple student, I had a different mindset and I had different goals. 
So when I, when I got into the work, I wanted to be a trial attorney. And I, I, st I still love being a trial attorney. I wanted to try juries. I wanted to get real life experience and I wanted to advocate for those who couldn't. And it's a public service position with the government. And you start to realize that there's bills like student loans. <laughs> you start to realize that you wanna buy a home. Mm -hmm. You start to realize that you want to start a family. And I started to realize that I could still do what I love to do in the courtroom and advocating for others, but in the private sector. Mm -hmm. And I and I think I think civil law really interested me and had the same type of of litigation in regards to uh, being in court, doing depositions, and really having um, that communication with clients. Right. So I think that's what interested me. But I but I think if if the public sector uh, kept up financially with the private sector, you would still probably be speaking to a prosecutor. And I think <laughs> I think most prosecutors leave solely for that reason. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you entirely. I thought I was going to go into um, juvenile justice law. I was, I interned at the juvenile law center as we can talk about how we definitely connect on that, but I interned there and I remember being like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> like, this is not what I would like really pictured for my life. I love working with kids and I am very passionate about juvenile justice reform, but like, this is not what I want for my life. But then I found work comp, which kind of married the two together, which is you feel like you're helping people, you're representing injured workers who need help, but also you're in the private for profit sector. So, you know, you are living that kind of like lawyery lifestyle that people think is how all lawyers live, which is not how all lawyers live. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> not but, but at what, all. <laughs> but one important thing, um, so I did an exit interview uh, with all my supervisors and all my mentors at the DA's office. And I was really upset to the point of tears because I knew that, you know, this was definitely an experience that will, will shape my life forever. And I, I didn't know if I was necessarily making the right decision. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kelly Hodge, who uh, was the district attorney at the time when I left, um, she was the first African-American woman district attorney in the state of Pennsylvania, which is kind of crazy to me, you know, during this time. Um, it's awesome for her, but also like, really? That's how long? Yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> and um, she gave me a lot of good advice. And she said that it, your work doesn't stop. You know, uh, we talked before we jumped on the Zoom um, and started recording, we, we talked about um, the partnership that we have uh, with The Right Legacy. And I, I think things like that outside of the courtroom, I mean, that can have like a vast, vast change for like any in one young person's life, the, the work that we're, we're trying to do. So she, she talked about all these programs and, and, uh, and I said to myself, we, I can do this, you can do this outside of the courtroom, not even as an attorney. So we're, I'm not in public interest law anymore, but I think we have a public interest mindset.
I agree. And I think that's something, you know, Jenna King, I'm like, oh, which is her married name now? You know, Jenna in the work comp world. And she's also very tuned in to the juvenile justice and the social justice reform. Um, and we were talking, she was on the podcast last week and she was talking about how, you know, work comp doing this type of law or doing any really type of litigation side, you can have more free time and more flexibility. And so even though we're representing injured workers, I spend most of my day talking to Jenna about what we're doing for the Philadelphia Bar Association and how we're getting involved in the community and doing the mock trial and bringing the books to the kids about reading how to become a lawyer and spending most of my time working on the right legacy, which by the way, everyone listening should go follow the right legacy. It is a new nonprofit. It just got its 501c3 status. Um, but it's our good friend, it's very exciting. Our good friend Chris Fox set it up and it's a nonprofit organization. And Raf and I are in charge of writing the curriculum, but we are going into schools in Chester County and teaching kids about the tenets of the law and giving them practicums to practice being lawyers. And we'll be in there teaching them. So I'm excited. So exciting. I know. Um, and so when I was mentioning about like police reform and, and social justice, it's like, it's been like such like a hot topic. And I think kids are, are genuinely interested in law, but we're probably in my shoes where like they didn't know where to start. They didn't know any attorneys. And, you know, with, with all of the, the police unjustified shootings that that's been happening, you know, since we started as attorneys, you know, Trayvon Martin was when we were in law school yep. up until Eric Gardner, Mike Brown, Sandra Blanks, Yana Taylor, George Floyd. People are interested. People want to know and, and people want change. So what I found, you know, how do, how do you change the system is you, you become part of that system. So I think uh, the right legacy is, is going to it's going to help kids understand the law and and possibly inspire someone to, to go into law. So, I mean, I'm just like so excited because if we can like really interest one student, then it's, it's worth it. 100% worth it. Especially if there's one kid who didn't know that they could go to law school before or didn't really understand, you know, civil rights laws are tough to understand and people think like certain things that are incorrect, but to get in there to actually explain concepts of the law, I didn't have any lawyers in my family. I had no idea anything about law school growing up um, and no one came to talk to us about being lawyers. Um, so I think it's really cool. Chris Fox is doing an awesome job with it. I'm, he's gonna have to be on here and talk about the right legacy. Even though he's a white man, we'll have him on to talk about the right legacy. I'll tune in and I'll listen. <laughs> I can't wait. Um, so anyway, so then we, you left, you came and to my firm where I was working at the time. And we worked together like three years, two, three years at least, right? Three years, yeah. Um, representing injured workers. And we both were part of the COVID layoff from that firm about a year ago. Um, and then both went our separate ways but you went into a really cool field. So tell me about what you're doing now. Yeah, so I was lucky enough where um, I, I know a lot of, you know, people are hurting around the world and workers can't, can't find any, any type of income. Um, but we were super lucky where we, we found our own opportunities and um, really excited where I'm at. So I'm at the law offices of Eric A. Shore 
and it's mostly an, an employment law firm and they're based in Voorhees, New Jersey. Um, but we also have an office in Philadelphia where I practice in uh, right outside of City Hall slash Love Park. Um, I handle mostly personal injury and workers' compensation. I would say it's probably 80% of my practice. Um, so personal injury would be uh, negligence, intentional torts, motor vehicle accidents, premises liability, some medical malpractice. And uh, for workers' compensation, uh, which you handle 100% uh, still to this day with your own practice. Um, and also I handle a little bit of civil rights, which I would say is 10% is of my practice in addition to uh, employment law, which I'm learning a lot about, wow. uh, which, which uh, our former colleague, Erica Shikhanov, mm -hmm. who I learned a lot from, um, I always wanted to handle a few employment law cases, and this firm has given me the opportunity to do so. So it, it's, it's been great because I've seen how uh, employment law, workers' compensation, social security, disability, how they all inter interconnect uh, because they don't even though we, we kind of practice our own little silos within our last firm, it, it does really affect. Um, and it's also really interesting how different causes of action um, can really affect each different lawsuit. So um, that, that's my practice. And I've been excited to, 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 to continue to represent clients in that capacity. Yeah, it's really cool that, like you said, I only do work comp. I forever see myself only ever doing work comp. I'm just a work comp girl. Um, but it's cool that you added on the employment law and the civil rights side of things. Cause I didn't realize how many people, I, I can't believe how many civil rights things I've already sent you because I didn't realize how many people call with civil rights issues. Now, I don't know how much of that is actually a feasible case or what you guys take on, but you do hear these stories of people calling in and telling stories and I'll be on the phone for like 45 minutes. I don't even take these cases. I don't practice the law, but just listening to what happened, you're like, oh my God, what happened? What's going on? It's crazy. Some of these things that are happening to people out there. It's yeah. I, I, I think um, I've always come from the standpoint of, um, I think you can both be for uh, police reform, but also social justice. So you can support the police and also hold police accountable. Um, a lot of my friends are police officers, um, but I think it's, it's just like any other profession where, you know, you might have some bad apples. Absolutely. And I, I think, um, as mentioned, it comes, keeps coming up, but with like uh, 2020, it, it's kind of put like a big spotlight on, you know, what, what is the role of police and what happens when there's police misconduct and brutality. So I, I, I think there's been a shift in regards to the public consensus and also public knowledge of what the law is. Um, also, everyone has a camera on their on their phone. So when there's instances of excessive use of force, or if there's like clear issues of racial profiling, literally people upload it, you know, onto YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and it becomes a national story within hours. Yeah. So, so I, I think now um, th there's a lot more 
more knowledge about you know what what people's rights are and then also this corroboration with with now the the use of uh camera phones and it's interesting you bring up i mean how you know talking about police officers because there's been like a huge split where people think you either like don't like the police and you don't want to support them or you're pro police no reform and it's like no you can you can still want police reform and still support the police i mean i never wanted to be a police officer because i'm terrified of the job <laughs> they have a scary job very uh, scary yeah i wouldn't be able to do it either scary. right it's very you know it requires a lot to go out there every day and to do that but to ignore that there's something wrong like the actual structure or the policies of the police are promoting systemic racism it's just putting your head in the sand you know it's absurd like you can support soldiers and want them to be protected and safe but also not support a war like you know the people like think yeah. you can't do the both things and it's just i had a friend be like why can't i support the police but also want reform i was like you can you're allowed to do that <laughs> people just act like all police are bad or all police are good and like you said that's just such a gross stereotype it's like lawyers so many people hate lawyers and i'm like all right well we're not all terrible <laughs> yeah right right it's like if you go to a dentist and you have like a horrible experience right like it's it was just one bad dentist right yeah. but it, it's magnified with the police force because they are they they do have to protect and serve us and and it barely when it doesn't <laughs> when it doesn't happen you know people have to be held accountable yeah i mean i could talk all day about this um i i recently hosted a panel with uh commissioner daniel outlaw um who's our current uh, philly police chief and she's incredible and she really talks about that the police is a community, you know, and the things that that she wants to change is not necessarily policy change, but more of a culture change. Mm -hmm. um, and and we did speak about policy, um, but there's there's restraints about like what um, we can we can and can't do. So, for example, like people don't know um, Act One Eleven. And essentially it's it's uh, how police are disciplined. So I'm sure you see the news all the time, like, hey, a police officer was drunk driving and he killed someone. So now he's suspended without pay. Suspended? Like, why is he, why isn't he like fired? Like, what's the issue here? Mm -hmm. um, so there's really, really strong police arbitration rules um, that are at the state level and um, those things have to be changed at Harrisburg and not necessarily in Philadelphia. Yeah. So it, 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 it's a lot of important talk, but I know that we have the right leadership in place and I'm glad that we're starting to have that conversation. But uh, this conversation is, is definitely initiated by young people. I don't think in our generation, we were like so, so engrossed in it, which I'm so happy with. Oh, I, you can definitely see a change coming. Um, it's and I think it's kind of like what you said everything is being filmed now so it's people are actually seeing it it's not like any of this is really new stuff it's just that we're all sitting at home with nothing to do and people are filming these injustices that are happening and it's like oh my gosh like you can't really ignore this you have to pay attention about what's going on and I feel like there's some part of you know privilege going in like I don't 
I'm not scared to call the police. Um, but I know people are scared to call the police if something is going on because of the way that they look. And I like that approach that the police should be more of the community and you should know your police officers and you shouldn't be scared to call them because you're not sure what's going to happen when they arrive. Um, yeah. But yeah. It's a community, it's a communication issue. I think at the end of the day, right. Um, if, if you grow up in West Philly or North Philly, and all, all the experiences that you have in, with the police are bad, right? Like they're in, they're in their cop cars. Anytime they're in the neighborhood, they're coming and arresting, you know, people that I, that I hang out with, you know, they don't really care about me. Right. So, so it's kind of like, it's like, it's like, what do you expect? Like, what do you think is going to happen when, you know, some, some stuff goes down and you don't necessarily want to call the police. Yeah. But um, a lot of the police like live in those same neighborhoods. So I, I think it's it's um, it's about getting that communication out, uh, better recruitment in regards to diversity. Yeah. Um, really, really important for the future. And I think investing, you know, those communities are there's so much police there, but there's not also access to mental health and things like that. It's it's about, you know, making sure that the communities are properly invested in and it's not just let's throw more police at the problem. Um, it's cool you're doing this work though. It's really cool. How, um, I guess, well, I guess you just started. I was gonna say, has there been an uptick at all in 2020 in this type of work? I think so. Yeah, I, I, I think there is. I, I think there is because like I mentioned before, I think people are aware of what their rights are. And I think that also translates into what decision makers within the courtroom will do, mm -hmm. aka juries and judges. So I, I think back in the day, you know, everyone, everyone respects officers, but I think it, it was to a different extent because no one would ever dispute what the police officer said. But I think, I think now there's like a healthy skepticism, you know, are they really telling us the truth? Mm -hmm. um, so I think more and more people are aware of, you know, you know, if, if I have been wrong, you know, maybe I should reach out to someone in regards to speaking to this issue. Um, and, and that's where like civil rights work comes in. Right. And really just like holding the police accountable for behavior and actions and whatnot. And I think it's important. I have a question about something and like, this is like such a lawyer question. Um, and I yeah. probably should know the answer, but I don't. Um, so, you know, I've, my friend's law firm is representing Jacob Blake and his family. And that was the Wisconsin shooting, um, that left the young man paralyzed essentially from the waist, or I think from the neck down. Um, but he does personal injury law. And so he's representing him on that. And it's case like that, would there be, um, a civil rights lawyer, like working with I mean, I guess this should be a question for him, but I'm going to ask you anyway. You both. <laughs> Would there be a civil rights lawyer working with a personal injury lawyer? Or is it mainly just a personal injury type issue? So I, I think most likely your friend is working in conjunction mm -hmm. um, and making sure that they get the right conclusion um, for Jacob. So from what I remember, uh, Jacob uh, was shot seven times, seven or eight times. Um, Jacob, who's African-American, uh, the police officer who's Caucasian, while responding to a domestic incident. Mm -hmm. um, and this happened late last summer. 
And essentially, from what I understand, there's a pending civil rights lawsuit for excessive force in federal court. Okay. Um, from civil rights uh, cases are really tough. Um, they're really tough against specifically law enforcement because there's there's a thing called qualified immunity. I was hoping you would talk about this. <laughs> yes, and with with qualified immunity, it, it essentially gives the standard is that it, it gives it gives leeway to law enforcement officers because they understand the type of work that they do. Mm -hmm. So you know these are high risk. Um, high violence um, situations where they have to make a decision um, within a split second. So it's the understanding that so long as there's no type of intentional involvement, which is completely different than torch law, because torch is more negligent. So like, what would a reasonable person do in this situation? Right. It, it's such a high, high, high burden. Um, and typically, the results or, or like a, a specific disposition that you would like from a civil rights lawsuit is changed within the department, um, unless you can prove some type of, of, of intentional action in this case. Um, with, with the case of Jacob Blake, um, in regards to the civil rights aspect, I think it's, I think it's super interesting because in this case, you know, the, the officer shot at, at Jacob seven times it's very excessive. If, if, if anyone's held a firearm in their hand, you know, you know, pulling that trigger seven times, you know, at what point did it become self-defense? And then at what point did it become, you know, intentional? Mm -hmm. um, for the, the personal injuries aspect of it, I think that's super interesting because then you would be suing him, be suing the officer as an individual and not within his capacity as an officer. And essentially, you know, you're looking just like a workers' compensation case. You're looking for, you know, what's what's he's missing? What's the damages? So, you know, from what I understand, he's a paraplegic, as you mentioned. So, what type of of medical bills, hospitalizations, physical therapy, uh, things that uh, Jacob Blake would need to have for the rest of his life? Um, also, for his lost wages, if if he was working. Um, also, loss of consortium. You know, if, if he had a significant other and he was providing for the significant other, um, also financial support for for his family, uh, for any any dependents, any children that he was taking care of. And most importantly, that uh, that I didn't know about in the workers comp system that you can do in personal injury is, is pain and suffering, <laughs> uh, which is huge, <laughs> huge. Pain and suffering, which we don't get in work comp. <laughs> yeah, which we should. We should. Um, but pain and suffering is is unquantifiable, right? Like, wh like, what's it worth to you to lose your legs for the rest of your life? Right. Right. So once, if your friend can convince the uh, decision maker that there should be some type of accountability in the Jacob Blake case, then the second question that that decision maker would have, and I'm not sure if he's going jury or, or judge, the second decision they, they would have to make is damages, right? So like what kind of, yeah. what, what's the number that you would put on, on this type of case? Um, I know that, um, I believe it was the Eric Gardner case. Um, I think they settled out of court for like 15 million. Um, 
I'm assuming it's going to be. Which doesn't even seem that much, to be honest. No, not at all, right? At that, yeah. But I'm assuming it's got to. They got to be talking somewhere in the seven to eight figure realm. Oh yeah. um, In regards to damages. Absolutely, and like that's another thing is, you know, police reform. People should be also looking at what the cities are paying out for these horrible, horrible cases that happen, but these are millions and millions and millions of dollars um, that if we kind of, if we try to reform the system, I mean, these families wouldn't be going through these horrible experiences. I mean, it's just crazy. The whole, it's just, we live in quite the time. <laughs> I know. And, and there's been a lot of talk of that actually, you know, like taxpayers are pissed, right? Because that's typically like a conservative issue, right? It's like, you know, why should a taxpayer be paying for the police misconduct when it's clearly intentional um, and, it, and it's coming off the coffers of, of like, you know, people who are paying, paying their real estate taxes. Right. So I know for like, uh, like Breonna Taylor, um, that's, a, that's a Kentucky case, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, you're um, so these are like Southern states that have to deal, you know, with, with these type of issues, you know, hundreds of lawsuits every year city solicitors who have to defend them on, on the city dime, you know, at, at what point it's like enough is enough. And, and uh, do like police officers individually become responsible? I know there's been a lot of talk of having like a separate like police insurance fund. That's been like a big talk, but it would have to be <laughs> very, very well funded, <laughs> very well funded. By police officers. By, right? So it's also know. sad that people are finally like enough is enough because their financial bottom line is being affected. Not that these people are being unjustly killed. It's that, oh, I don't want my tax dollars to pay for this anymore. Like, <laughs> oh, not surprising. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, Raph, it was so awesome to have you on here today. I really appreciate your time. Um, Something I ask people when we close out the show is what is something that brings you joy? Oh, something that brings me joy. That's a good question. I love that question. Thank you. Um, I love hearing the answer. I, yeah. I think seeing other people succeed. So uh, to flip your question, I was having a, a, a debate with my dad who I would consider him like to be my greatest mentor in my life. Um, and he, we were talking about like, what's your fears? And I said, you know, my biggest fear is like failing. Like I, I hate failing. You know, I hate when I can't like toast something correctly, or I hate when I take a case of decision and it's, it's a negative result. Oh, that's the worst. And, and then I realized that, you know, we're in the business of litigating and, and there's winners and losers. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, some of the best joys that, that you receive is, is something that, like that's outside of the courtroom. It's, it's just like literally just people succeeding. So mm-hmm. when we settle a case outside of court and we have that conversation with a client about, you know, them resigning from their employer and uh, sometimes the insurance company doesn't want to pay for like a specific medical bill. I've kind of changed those discussions into like into joys of, of succeeding. And, and we have to 
be advocates for our clients, um, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like that they're winning in the case. I just had a client um, who I settled last week, the strangest case ever. Um, she worked as a, a cricket warehouse manager. And in order for the crickets to uh, be thriving and to live. Oh, actual crickets? I thought you meant actual crickets. Like the the mobile service or oh, actual cricket, actual crickets, actual crickets. Um, they have to be placed within 95 to hundred degrees humidity. And this is like out in like York, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And it, the warehouse itself started to develop black mold, um, like serious black mold to, to the point where you can literally like see it and like scrape it from, from the corners. And and she developed some serious, serious, serious like asthma and respiratory right. related issues. And that was the case that, that I wanted to bring the decision, but we ended up getting a pretty good settlement on it. And it's, it's strange because you don't, they don't necessarily have like a judge's order. They don't necessarily have like their final day in court where they get to talk about, you know, why they won. Mm -hmm. Um, it was her birthday when we settled the case and she was just like in tears. She was just like so happy yeah. that we were able, able to get like just, just like a little bit of money that, that can like make her feel, you know what, there's a conclusion to my case. Um, or, or even like, uh, seeing like a, a good friend that you haven't seen in a long time, like little joys in life yeah. is, is seeing like people succeed. And I, I think we're, we're conduits of that. So for me, it's, joy for me is like seeing other people happy, seeing other people succeed. Um, and, and I think that's why I'm so excited to do the work that we both do is because like we have that capacity that not a lot of people have that responsibility to do so. And that is what makes you a good lawyer is because you want to essentially, I mean, our the clients that come to us are broken, like physically and mentally, they're just done. So that you have that desire to bring some joy into their life. It's huge. It's so important. And it makes you a good lawyer. So I love that answer. We're both great lawyers. <laughs> High five. <laughs> well, it was so good talking to you, Raph. I really appreciate you being on here today and sharing your joy. And I wish you the best with everything. Thanks, Katie. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, bud. Rafael Castro. Um, that was so awesome talking to him. I think it was really cool when Raf was talking about how he is um, the son of two immigrants who came over from the Dominican Republic. I mentioned representation when I talked about wanting to have on the um, podcast. And I did make a joke about, you know, white guys, but uh, in the legal field, it's been really slow to adding diversity and equity. And um, Braff is a great example of someone who came, his parents came over from Dominican Republic and he's worked so hard to get to where he is. And now he has had jobs where he's in the public sector. He takes civil rights cases. And he helps out injured workers. And he's just, it's so important to see someone like Raf who's out there and is accomplishing so much 
um, and is doing it so young. He's only 30 years old. It was so great talking to him, and it was so interesting also to hear his perspective on the public versus the private sector. And I related to that a lot because I always thought I wanted to go into public interest law. And then when you actually start to practice in it, you see how different it is than what you imagine it to be. And something that's so, so crucial, which is finances, uh, the public sector really doesn't pay well. And people have to make serious decisions if they're gonna stay in the public sector or move to the private sector. And I loved what Raf said about being in the public interest world versus having a public interest mindset. And I think we both really uh, relate to that in that we both switched over to the private sector because it pays better and it gives us more free time, but we still have the public interest mindset in that we try to go out there and spend our free time helping where we can. Um, but obviously the most important, I think, part of his conversation was when he talked about police reform. And Raf has a lot of hands-on experience with this. And I loved when he talked about changing the system. And it's from his point of view about getting involved and not just you know pointing fingers at the system and saying what's wrong with it, but actually getting involved and trying to work within the system to better it. And part of what we're doing with The Right Legacy uh, with Chris Fox, who will be a guest on the show, um, is about getting kids involved and inspiring them to want to get involved and to change how things are. And we talked about, you know, Raph and I compared uh, bad police to bad lawyers or bad dentists. And I, I think we should have qualified. It's obviously not the same thing. You know, a bad dentist may botch your teeth, but it's not the same as what you know, cops are doing out there to people of color. Um, so, you know, just to be clear that we're obviously not comparing uh, the atrocities that we're seeing with the police brutality to what, you know, other people in a profession who aren't great people are doing. Um, but I agree with him. What he's saying is that you can support the police, but also hold them accountable. And I think the problem is that though you may be having a couple bad eggs, um, with police officers, the system isn't built to hold them accountable. If anything, it's almost promoting the brutality to continue on and on. And that's what needs to change. It's not just individual police officers. I mean, they're part of the problem, obviously, but it's the police lack of accountability and the immunity that they're afforded. Um, and Raf brought this up. I thought it was awesome. The the uh, video content now that something can happen and within a couple minutes to an hour it's nationwide news and this didn't happen before um i think we just had the george floyd Derek chauvin verdict came down and a couple hours later there was another police shooting of a young teenage black girl and it was shared within hours and it's just i don't think that that would have happened before we had all of this video content that gets shared within seconds um and becomes a nationwide story so i think raf offered some really awesome perspective um you know he's very level-headed and tries to see both sides of an argument um i was so grateful to have him on i think he's an awesome guy and he's doing awesome things for the community so um you can check him out he works over at Eric Shore's office, as he said, in New Jersey and in Philadelphia, but he's very active in the community, um, always out there doing good stuff, and he's on the board of The Right Legacy with me. Um, so just huge thanks to Rafael Castro for being on the show with us, 
and you guys can tune in next week for our next guest. So thanks for joining us. Bye.